0: This is the History of the World podcast, with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 54, The Battle of Adrianople. Adrianople is the modern Turkish city of Adirne, located right on the Turkish border with Greece. Renamed by the Ottomans, it briefly served as the capital city of the Ottoman Empire. It sits on the Maritsa River in the geographical region of Thrace. Traveling east from Adrianople would take you to the Bosporus Strait and the incredible city of Constantinople, now Istanbul. The location of where Adrianople would be built was significant in that you would have to pass through this area should you want to get from the Balkan Peninsula to Anatolia with the least amount of sea crossing. From Greek lands you would pass this area to make your way to the Hellespont or the Bosporus Strait, both of which separate Europe from Asia. This was a similar area of the world to Troy, but on the European side of the Propontis, the modern Sea of Marmara. It is likely to have been an area of tribal life during the second millennium BCE, without any known identity that we can be aware of. Byzantium was supposedly founded during the seventh century BCE, which is the city that would become Constantinople, and then in turn Istanbul. Macedonians would have to pass through Thracian lands to get to Byzantium and vice versa. The first really significant political event to hit the area of today's story was after the Achaemenid Persians had expanded their empire from the banks of the Persian Gulf all the way up to and including Anatolia. This would unnerve the Greek city-states who would each individually pick their side with this huge threat now on their doorstep. They could either submit to the Persians or collaborate against them. The Achaemenid ruler was Darius the Great who recognised the value of crossing the Hellespont and occupying Thrace bringing it into the Achaemenid Persian territory. This would remain the case until Darius's son Xerxes launched the unsuccessful second Persian invasion of Greece which we devoted episodes 11 and 12 to. The Greek victory over the Persians resulted in the Persians abandoning Thrace and heading back west. Those tribes of Thrace were now being drawn into international politics and were having to advance their own culture somewhat to keep up with everything going on around them. Herodotus tells us that the Odrysian tribe were the ones to step up and take some form of authority over the region. Thucydides tells us that the first Odrisian king was Theres the first who reigned from around 460 BCE it does appear that the Odrysians were able to amalgamate many of the tribes of the area between Macedonia and Byzantium including the lands of the modern country of Bulgaria. It's important to note that the Odrysian kingdom was a very loose confederation of tribes and there would have been local chiefs operating within this kingdom. Due to its proximity to the affairs of the Aegean political arena Odrissa would become involved in the Peloponnesian Wars, mainly as an ally to Athens. Although during the 4th century, the Odrysian Kingdom would fragment with the emergence of competing kings vying for power and the state weakening as a consequence. It would not be long before the emerging classical world superpower of Macedonia started its program of expansion when Basilius Philip II of Macedon invaded the kingdom and brought it into the realm of his empire during the 340s. Local rulers in this area would be puppets of the Macedonian rulers Philip and his son Alexander the Great. After the death of Alexander the Macedonian empire would be ruled by satraps who increasingly became politically separated from one another until such a time as they acted as independent rulers. Thrace would be ruled by the Diadicus called Lysimachus, who we spoke of during episode 21. After the death of Lysimachus, the region returned to the local rule of the Odrysian tribes and the Macedonian subjugation was somewhat of a memory as the neighbouring Macedonian territory returned to being a local kingdom. During the 2nd century the Roman Republic had crossed the Adriatic to occupy their subjugated territory in Illyria before pushing deeper into the Balkan Peninsula to defeat the Macedonians and absorb the Greek lands into the Roman realm. Across the Aegean Sea in Anatolia the Pergamians surrendered their territory to the Romans leaving the Adrisian coastline as the only Aegean coastline not part of the lands belonging to the Roman Republic. This refers essentially to the Thracian lands north of the Hellespont equivalent to the location of this week's battle. For the years leading up to the end of the Roman Republic the Romans were far more concerned over the mighty powers of the Asiatic lands such as the Seleucids, the Pontics and the Parthians to be too concerned over the Idrissians of Thrace. The Idrissians appeared to be somewhat subject to Roman command in any case, probably realising that resistance to this great nation was futile. The Romans effectively allowed the Idrissians to continue to rule their lands. However, there were historical reports of Thracian raids into the Balkans which undoubtedly annoyed the Romans. When Emperor Augustus took control of Rome and turned it into the Roman Empire, there was a very definite program of Romanization in Thrace, which would gradually see the region consumed and ruled by the Roman Empire. And this conquest was completed by the time of the rule of Emperor Claudius during the 40s. The Roman governor of Thrace would reside at Perinthus, overlooking the Propontis. This site is not too far from the settlements of Uskudama and Byzantium, which would respectively become Adrianople and Constantinople. So there was certainly more importance on the Thracian Peninsula under the Romans, which is important considering that the Roman capital would move here less than 300 years later. Trajan would look to politically organise the region during his reign in the 2nd century with a geographical hierarchy where villages would come under the jurisdiction of their local city. During the time of Trajan's successor Hadrian, the settlement of Uskudama was rebuilt and enlarged and named Adrianapolis in his honour. This is the Greek name equivalent to the Roman Adrianople. Soon after, the tribal nature of the region disappeared altogether. The Goths The area to the direct north of Thrace along the banks of the Black Sea was occupied by the Dacians at the beginning of classical antiquity who were closely related to the Thracians at the time. Then there was a westward expansion by the Sarmatians, a people closely related to the Scythians of the Eurasian steppe. Greco-Roman writers first speak of the Goths during the 2nd century. They are known to be Germanic in origin, so we can look towards northern Europe, and that they were undertaking a southward expansion into Sarmatian territory when they caught the attention of the Romans for the first time. The Romans recognised them as being from the area around the Vistula River, which runs through the modern Polish capital of Warsaw. The Vistula empties into the Baltic Sea, where we can find the Swedish island of Gotland. So we can speculate about the same etymological roots here with the Goths and Gotland, and certainly the important Swedish city of Gothenburg it is very possible that all these things are related. During the period of the Marcomannic Wars, the Romans were attempting to move into the area occupied by the Sarmatians. This period is noted mostly for the outbreak of the Antonine Plague, which Roman legionaries contracted while campaigning against the Parthians. The Marcomannic Wars were caused by tensions between the Romans and the Germanic tribes to their north who were becoming more of a burden to the Romans' northern borders, possibly due to increasing population numbers. It's often down to Roman documentation of these incursions that we are introduced to some of the earliest references to Germanic tribes who go on to play a more important role in future politics we know that the Suebi and the Vandals are listed among the belligerents from the Germanic tribes. The Suebi and the Vandals played an important role in the decline of the Western Roman Empire, which is the era for today's battle episode. The Goths are not specifically referenced until the 3rd century, although many do believe them to be the same ethnicities as the gutones of the lands around the Vistula, which we mentioned earlier. Their first Roman incursions came from the lands of the Sarmatians, so it appears that the Goths integrated with the Sarmatians at some stage. We can see the earliest indicators of what is retrospectively referred to as the migration period of the European continent during the middle of the first millennium, where many of the nomadic tribes were being displaced and displacing others in a domino effect that would ultimately destroy the Western Roman Empire. A union of Goths and Sarmatians under the leadership of the Gothic King Caneva invaded Roman territory and took the city of Philippopolis, the modern Bulgarian city of Plovdiv, before going on to kill the Roman Emperor Decius at the Battle of Abritus. This would lead to generations of tensions between the Goths and the Romans on the Romans' northeastern borderlands. However, as we learned with our episode on the Celts last week, we have to remember that the Goths were not a national entity but a group of tribes with cultural connections. As with the Celts in previous centuries, we can find that some Gothic tribes actually chose to fight alongside the Romans as mercenary units. We are aware that Licinius had Gothic support in his battles with Constantine the Great. The Goths were also Christianised after the reign of Constantine, albeit the Arian Christian form which was considered unfavourable when the Roman Empire itself declared itself a Christian Empire towards the end of the 4th century. The Roman Empire Now we have told the story of the Roman Empire on a number of occasions now so we really just need to target today's story rather than tell the full story over again. We know that the Roman Empire had flourished from a small city state that was founded over a thousand years before this period. It existed as a republic governed by a senate of the most prominent statesmen for many centuries and during these years it would absorb local cities, regions and eventually nations in order to become the most powerful entity that the lands of Europe and the Mediterranean had ever seen. At the end of the first century BCE, a young man called Octavian would ascend to be given authority over most of the matters of the Republic as more and more senators would act in defiance of each other. The stability of having a style of monarchy again since its abolition almost five centuries previous was necessary as Rome was unrecognisable compared to its days as a kingdom. Octavian would rule as Emperor Augustus and although there would be some questionable emperors during the first century there existed something called the Pax Romana during the first two centuries which represented a period of relative peace. Towards the end of the 2nd century, pressures increased between the Romans on their northern frontier and the Germanic tribes, which we have already mentioned in regard to the Marcomannic Wars. Weakened by the Antonine Plague, Rome would never be the same again as the armies grew more powerful than the Senate and eventually the Emperor himself. During the 3rd century, a succession of deposed emperors were witnessed over a sustained period and this surely affected Rome's standing both domestically and internationally. It appears that barbarian tribes and other nations were starting to get the better of the Romans more often on the battlefield and it became very apparent that Reformation was the only answer to this issue. So the Emperor Diocletian would introduce the idea of separate governance of the eastern and western halves of the empire and with Diocletian choosing to rule from the east it seems that now was the beginning of the balance of power moving away from the city of Rome. Under Constantine the reformation of the empire continued with the introduction of religious tolerance Paving the way for Christianity to ascend as the religion of the future and the repositioning of the empire's capital at Byzantium, renamed Constantinople in Constantine's honour. This would mark the movement into a new era for the Roman Empire, which saw the city of Rome, the West, and pagan tradition becoming somewhat antiquated during the 4th century. Valens The Roman Emperor, Jovian, died in the year 364 and he would be succeeded by the Emperor known as Valentinian the Great. Valentinian's younger brother was Valens and they originated from the lands of the modern country of Croatia. Valens was a follower of Arian Christianity and defied the pagan observing Roman Emperor Julian the apostate when Valens's older brother Valentinian became the emperor he immediately came under the pressure to have a co-emperor for the sake of the stability of the empire and so he selected his younger brother Valens to be the Augustus in the east Julian the apostate's cousin Procopius observed pagan tradition like Julian and he would soon try to depose Valens by taking control of Constantinople while Valens was in Antioch. Valens would have been usurped had it not been for the encouragement he received from his army and the defection of some of Procopius's troops. Valens would take control back and had Procopius executed. Procopius's cause had been aided by the Goths, and so Emperor Valens decided to make those Gothic territories pay for their choice. Valens took an army across the Danube River and engaged with the Goths, who were led by Athanaric. Valens was able to get the better of Athanaric, and the Goths had to sue for peace. It is believed that Fritigern was among those Goths defending their lands. Fritigan Fritigan was a Gothic king and what we know about him is very little because he was from a society that didn't record much in writing. He was a part of the Tervingi who were a Gothic people and believed to be ancestral to the Visigoths. Nothing is known of his childhood and upbring but we do know that when Valens invaded Gothic territory north of the Danube River in three hundred sixty nine and defeated the Goths under Athenaric that these Goths were the Tervingi and therefore Fritigan is likely to have been among their numbers. Despite Fritigan supporting his fellow Goth Athenaric, tensions seem to have existed between the two of them. This could have been something to do with Fritigan's conversion to Aryan Christianity. It is documented that Athenadic persecuted Christians. The whole situation erupted into a Gothic civil war. Prelude to the Battle tensions in the gothic territory are likely to have been exacerbated by the advance of the huns the huns reached and crossed the nista river which runs roughly alongside the border between the modern countries of ukraine and moldova crossing the river brought them into tervingi territory athanaric would be the Tervingi leader who would move to meet the Huns but the Huns made a manoeuvre that outwitted the Tervingi and Athanaric gave the order to retreat. This would allow the Huns to continue to raid Tervingi territory. Fritigan was still at odds with the pagan Athanaric, as their civil dispute had been going on for some time. It might be the case that Fritigan believed that his common observance of Arian Christianity with the Roman Emperor Valens might stand for something and that Valens might firstly be willing to support him against his pagan rival Athenaric and secondly grant him and his people refuge on the Roman side of the Danube River. Things were indeed becoming desperate in Gothic territory. Much of the wealth of the land had been exhausted through the civil conflict between Athanaric and Fritigern and what was left was being plundered by the Huns. Athanaric had to stay and face the music while Fritigern chased a deal with the Romans. Valens allowed Fritigern's Goths to cross the Danube and settle Roman lands as long as he pledged Gothic allegiance to the Roman armies if necessary. With Valens away from the region in Antioch, it would fall into the hands of the Roman governors Lupicinus and Maximus to oversee the resettlement and ensure Gothic cooperation within the empire. Things didn't go well. It seems that the Roman governors did not treat the Goths with much respect. But the vast numbers who crossed and settled must have been a logistical nightmare food was being sold to the Goths at unreasonably high prices with some reports stating that they were being given cheap dog meat and having their children taken into slavery if they couldn't afford to pay. There were also reports of some of the senior representatives of the Goths being tricked into attending a feast before either being murdered or imprisoned. Fritigan could not just sit by and allow this to happen and his people were ready to battle against the local Roman forces of Lupicinus. The two armies met at the Battle of Marchinople, where the fury of the Goths caused Lupicinus to flee. Half of Lupicinus' army may have perished in the battle and certainly Fritigan's men were more than happy to help themselves to any discarded weapons and armour. The fact that the Goths had scored such an incredible victory over the Roman army may have excited the barbarian tribes north of the Danube and soon even the Huns themselves had decided to get involved in the raids on Roman lands. Suddenly, the Romans had become the common enemy of everybody with those Goths and Huns who had opposed each other now seeing a bigger prize that could benefit them all. In their westward expansion, the Huns had pushed the Alans and the Groitungi into Thrace. The Alans were of Scythian stock and likely related to the Sarmatians of the Pontic Steppe. The Groitungi were the Goths who were on originally the far side of the Nister River before the Huns crossed and engaged with Atanaric and the Tervingi. Now all of these peoples had concertinaed into roman thrace and were pillaging the land and defeating their armies the romans had to respond valens was reluctant to see this problem escalate as his primary focus was on the Sasanians of persia the glory of victory in the east was the dream of any roman emperor so for valens to see the gothic issue go out of control must have been frustrating to put it mildly. The point came where Valens would not be allowed to ignore the issue any longer. Valens's older brother Valentinian the Great, the Roman Emperor in the West, had died in 375, apparently from a stroke, while angrily shouting at some Germanic tribesmen over in his half of the empire. He would be succeeded by his son Gratian. And Gratian would be called upon by his uncle Valens to offer support to him with his Gothic problem. Gratian would be limited in what he could offer and how quickly he could offer it because he had his own issues on his own frontiers. So Valens realized that he could not rely on Gratian and would need to take action for himself. If he didn't, then maybe another Roman would take the opportunity to put down the Goths. And put themselves in the frame to usurp the throne of the Eastern Emperor if there was a popular outcry for it. Valens would travel to Constantinople and gather an army, possibly with as many as fifty thousand men. He would commission the assistance of a highly experienced military commander called Sebastianus, and together they would set off at Adrianople, joined by the few forces that gratian in the west had been able to spare in haste. In the back of Valencia's mind, if he could defeat the Goths without the full force of Gratian's assistance, then he could claim the glory for himself and not feel threatened by popular support for the young and talented new emperor in the west. The Groetungi Goths, likely ancestral to the Ostrogoths, were the ones who had settled the Pontic steppe and their great contribution militarily would be the cavalry, as one might not be surprised to learn of a steppe-based community. When the Romans under Valens were approaching, rather inconveniently the Groetungi horsemen had gone on a foraging expedition, so the timing of the Romans was quite good. When Fritigern learned of the Roman approach, he chose to set up camp on high ground and surround the camp with his wagons surrounding the camp like a protective ring. Fritigern knew that the Romans were camped in Adrianople just a few kilometres away and attempted to send envoys to negotiate terms of peace. But many suggest that this was just a delaying tactic while Fritigern hoped for a speedy return for the Groitungi cavalry. On the morning of the 9th of August Valens decided to march his army at speed to the Gothic encampment ready to do battle. It was a fine day, in fact it was a hot day. In likelihood it was too hot to quickly march several kilometres without suffering some debilitation. The Battle of Adrianople The Gothic infantry emerged from the circle of wagons protecting their families and possessions. We even read of how the Goths lit grass fires to confuse the Romans as the smoke travelled in their direction, probably causing havoc with their already dry throat and eyes. The Goths understood that they needed to buy themselves some time while the Groetungi Horsemen were hurrying back to the scene of the imminent battle. Valens knew that he could not continue to be stalled. He had committed his troops to defeat the Goths and his best chance was to do it quickly. The Romans charged the Goths in a hasty manner somewhat uncharacteristically. The infantry on the Roman right was pursued by the Roman cavalry who intended to support them and the Roman cavalry on the left flank attempted to attack the wagons. It was at this point that the Groytungi cavalry emerged, adding thousands to the Gothic numbers, and what's more is that the Romans had committed themselves so wildly that they were strung out and vulnerable to being isolated from their base position. What happened next was a massacre. The Roman horsemen that had rode out from the left to attack the wagon circle were surrounded and slaughtered. The Roman infantry were utterly defenceless. The Gothic cavalry advanced and this gave the Gothic infantry the confidence to advance too. The Roman infantry closed their ranks but found themselves surrounded and suffocated by the relentless attacks of the Gothic army. The Roman situation was not unlike the one that they found themselves in over 400 years earlier at the Battle of Cari, when the Parthians surrounded and slaughtered Marcus Licinius Crassus's Roman army. Only around a third of the Roman army managed to escape the battlefield, and the Emperor Valens and his valued commander Sebastianus were not among them. Sebastianus was killed, but Emperor Valens was simply never seen again. Aftermath Roman losses are stated to amount to as many as 40,000 and it is because of this that some historians describe this as the worst Roman defeat since Hannibal's Carthaginian army defeated them at the Battle of Cannae some 600 years previous. The last Roman defeat that had such severe repercussions for Rome's integrity was the Battle of Edessa when the Roman Emperor Valerian was captured and died in captivity. This defeat meant that the Romans now had to accept a powerful foreign entity now within their boundaries and rather than be their bosses they would have to work alongside them to keep the peace. The Romans would be powerless to make demands of the Goths within their territory due to the lack of military might that remained within the Roman ranks following this mass slaughter at Adrianople. All of the Roman munitions in this area were either destroyed or taken over fritigan would certainly be at the center of continued tensions between the goths and the romans theodosius would succeed valens as the roman emperor in constantinople and he would work towards establishing a peace between the romans and the resident goths and this is where we see fritigan disappear from history without much to offer any clues about his ultimate fate the impact of the roman defeat gave the Goths the confidence to believe that they could actually bully the Romans and the whole situation may not have accelerated had it not been for the pressures created by the westward expansions of the Huns. The symbolic Gothic sacking of Rome in 410 gave all of the barbarians the belief that they could take on the Romans in battle and the reverberations created by the Roman defeat at Adrianople would surely create the circumstances by which barbarian tribes had the confidence to dismantle the Western Roman Empire over the course of the next 100 years. Thanks for listening to this week's episode once again. A great story of a very heroic victory by Frittigan and the Goths and a real turning point in European history, a real indicator of the classical world making way for the medieval world. And uh, certainly we see once again, the great use of cavalry in warfare that has come up over and over again in all of our battle episodes. So uh, a great example of warfare and tactical um, we say tactical superiority in the end and uh maybe a bit of fortune as well a bit of good fortune which we've seen in uh previous battle episodes as well so what we really need to do to tie up um our classical world of europe into uh the medieval period is to just review this um migration period and that's what we're going to do in next week's episode so uh, that should be extremely interesting, and we can see more of how Europe is starting to take shape and become more like the Europe that we know today. Messages. Let's uh, see who's been writing emails into me this week. Uh, the first one I've got is from Matt Tupholm who's put uh, absolutely stoked on your podcast and like I've heard from others, always have been a bit fuzzy on the timelines and now it makes sense. I really hope you are able to continue till you get to your goal of current history. Uh, I'm on episode four of volume two, Matt from British Columbia, Canada. Uh, Thank you so much, Matt. And um, I'm getting um, quite a few messages coming through from Canada now and it's great because... um, there was a time that many of you will remember where I actually stuck the boot in on the entire country of Canada and um, you've sort of proved me to be a bit of an idiot to be quite honest with you because you've all come back and uh, given me plenty of messages and reviews and uh, now I feel extremely humbled um, by your great nation. So thank you very much. Um, And uh, anyone who writes in, I hope... um, with your compliments for the podcast I hope you also rate and review the podcast because that is the best way that you can say a thank you uh, for all of the uh, for all of the episodes that we've put out there so um, rate and review the podcast and and let's get more listeners on board Jazz Peralta has written in and said I've just started listening to the podcast it's very educational indeed I am from the Philippines but now live in Massachusetts for 16 years. I like the way you present it, very well organised and enjoyable to listen to. I thought it would be good for me to relearn the history of the world. The last time I read it was in senior high school. Um, Thank you very much, Jazz. Um, Yeah, we hear that a lot as well, that people are sort of uh, revisiting history and, and it's... It's much like myself actually I forgot how much I like history uh, until such a time as I found a way to um, enjoy it and when you look when you go online now there are so many good presentations I am just one of a number of people out there who've been um, very um, very good and uh, interesting material online and and certainly on youtube and and even you know my associate there nick Barkstow at the study of antiquity in the middle ages um who who does some fantastic work in um, putting out some history videos history based videos so um plenty for everyone to get their teeth into and and um learn and enjoy history as it should be Uh, dag vincent delson has sent me a message through facebook um it's but hi there i'm listening to your podcast three hours a day driving uh driving for work you have learned me so much and i am so grateful for your professionalism thanks mate Dave from sweden uh thank you very much Dave. um and um yeah that's a lot of listening three hours a day that's um that's some serious going uh, but thank you so much. And, and once again, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. Now, if you want to do more for the project, indeed you can. You can support the project financially. Um, just simply go to the, the com website, click on the Patreon link, and sign up to make a monthly donation. And it can be from as little as $1 a month, and you can qualify for uh, rewards and you don't have to sign up for a monumental um, monthly donation. You can just accrue it over time, which uh, many people don't offer that on Patreon. I do, I'm happy to do that. If you accrue um, a, a significant amount of money over a period of time, then I will honor the reward that Uh, Most Patreon Patreon sites will only offer you if you sign up to make a a large monthly contribution. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in rewarding people for their generosity, uh, regardless of how long it takes them to do it. And um, I'm pleased to announce that the History of the World podcast t-shirts and mugs are being obtained once again. I was getting a little bit concerned because COVID was... Uh, forcing the T-shirt production to be quite hard to uh, to obtain, so like they were they were putting some ridiculous um, postage and packaging costs on, and, and blaming it all on COVID, which which might have been sort of quite genuine. I would imagine from their perspective, it, it, it must have been quite genuine, but it really wasn't a practical solution for me. But luckily, they've sorted it out, so we're back on track with that and the History of the World podcast mugs, um, they uh, they ran out over Christmas of the ones that I use in particular for the, for the branded mugs for the podcast. So fortunately now they're back in stock and I've been able to obtain them once again. So we're back on track with all of the gifts and certainly uh, if you accrue $50 worth of donations over any length of time, um you don't get the t-shirts and mugs they're for different tiers but you can also get the fridge magnets the uh the uh, the uh, key rings you get and also the the coasters as well so all branded with the history of the world podcast logo they all they all look quite smart as well i'm quite impressed with how they've come out so go along to the patreon site investigate that Um, and i frequently post the youtube videos on that page as well so that you can actually get to view them through the patreon website and um, enjoy enjoy come along and um, do your bit for the podcast every bit helps and and it also helps me to invest in stuff like pop shields which uh, enable me to talk directly into the microphone without breathing all over you because it prevents that P-p-p-p-p- that P sound from hitting the microphone and distorting it. So, um, very important piece of equipment for anyone broadcasting, and uh, you guys have helped to pay for that. So, thank you. So, that's it for another week. Uh, don't forget, join me next week, once again, for more History of the World podcast, and we're going to be looking at the next stage in european history what exactly happened when the western roman empire disappeared who took its place who went where and and why did they go there and uh, this is called the migration period of europe and it's a very important period that links us up to medieval europe which will be coming sometime later this year so don't miss next week's episode thank you so much have a great week everyone, and. uh, please don't forget to be good do you want more from the History of the World podcast then visit our website historyoftheworldpodcast.com you can join our discussion forum and find us on social media support the podcast for as little as one dollar per month by clicking the Patreon link email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com the best ones will be read out be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us